get to a lonely place in the road and you begin to squeeze. You're an ex-GI, you know judo, you know how to kill a person. Go ahead, go ahead, brother. Squeeze harder. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. special episode of the watchers karamazov we are your hosts the bastard sons of hegel i am carl bookmarks and i'm sore in rear guard friends we're still holding down the fort without friedrich picha he sends his regrets to us this week he was off having some what he described as uncrimely meditations and so he thought it, he would not be a good fit for a pod about two classic noir films we're pressing on without him uh, this week, talking about two films based on two of our books from this last cycle on mystery, that being Carl Franklin's 1995 sort of neo-noir adaptation of Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress, starring Denzel Washington, Don Cheadle, Maury Chaikin, Tom Sizemore, and Jennifer Beals, and then uh, Nicholas Ray's 1950 adaptation of Dorothy B. Hughes' In a Lonely Place, starring Humphrey Bogart, Gloria Graham, and a whole bunch of nobodies. So we're going to talk through these two films a little bit today. Um, if you've listened to some of our previous film episodes, you'll know we, we are both, and Friedrich as well, our film fans. And so we, we're going to dive into some of the technical aspects of the films. We'll try to do it in a way that's user-friendly. But we are also interested in, uh, you know, with these movies in particular, how they fit with the books we've already talked about. So just a quick noting of some key differences here. So I will say the Devil in a Blue Dress film is, I would say, largely faithful to Walter Mosley's novel. Um, it has the usual condensations that happen when you're dealing with a story and trying to put it into two hours. So certain characters get shifted around, certain things happen in, you know, in different ways, and people... There's a, there's a slight changing in some of who does what, and we can get into that in a yeah. little bit. Um, there's maybe one important difference there, which we'll press on as we get to it. But but for the most part, it's basically the same story as, as the novel version. It features Denzel Washington as E.Z. Rollins investigating the disappearance of Jennifer Beale's character Daphne and Monet on all that good stuff. So that, that's roughly the same. In a Lonely Place is a little bit different. In fact, it's quite a bit different than the book that it's based on. <laughs> And here are just some of the major changes. So in the book, Dix Steele is an aspiring crime novelist living kind of hand-to-mouth in Los Angeles. In the film version, played by Humphrey Bogart, uh, he is a, a once-successful screenwriter in Hollywood. So everybody knows who he is. That's a, that's a pretty big change. Uh, the other big change is there's only one murder in, in A Lonely Place, and that's this sort of coat girl who helps Dix Steele do some writing and then she disappears and is, is apparently dead. And it turns out, and of course the big twist here is that in, in the movie version, he doesn't kill her. He's not responsible for her death at all. So he's not a murderer. In the book, Dick Steele, as we said last time with spoilers attached, is the murderer. He's a serial killer, basically. He's killing all these young women. 
in Los Angeles. He's strangling them. Here, it's a one-off, and he doesn't even do it. So it's quite a bit different. And there's a lot of other stuff around the edges, right? It's very much, actually, interestingly, and we can talk about this a little bit, it's a film about Hollywood, which many of the great films are, and including one other great noir, at least, Sunset Boulevard, of course. So it's a film about filmmaking to a to an extent at the same time that it's a noir and it's this you know investigation of masculinity in, in the post-war era um, some of those things are the same i would also say i mentioned this briefly last time that thematically it feels a bit different from the book version and we'll dive into that as we get to it but it feels like in some ways they took the basic germ of the idea of the book and then turned it into a pretty radically different thing in some good ways and maybe some bad ways as well um, so, so, so we'll talk about that as we get to it. Carl, where do you want to start? Do you want which which film? Well, well, let's start here. Which film did you think was better? Not merely as an adaptation, although we can talk about that as well, but just at the level of filmmaking. Did you feel like there was a clear standout, or did you both think that they were both pretty good? Or what did you make of them? Watching them in close proximity. That's a really hard question because now I can't see the films apart from their novels, their source material, and from that standpoint i personally like devil in a blue dress better as a movie than in a lonely place as a movie compared to the novels but without them on a cold watching of the film having not read the books i don't know sometimes in a noir the pace and the plot moves really quickly where on a first read or first watch it's like a little bit discombobulating what's happening how is it that the detective character is a step ahead of the cops or the plot or whatever and i think i would have been a little more lost in a devil in a blue dress than i would have been in in a lonely place there it seems like pretty simple what's happening so that would have made them a little bit more of a toss-up had i not read both books but i definitely like both movies there's some interesting saving graces to the the slightly weird changes of in a lonely place uh, i think you're dead on that in a lonely place makes strong divergent changes from the book to make it kind of a totally different story in some ways and devil in a blue dress tries its best to kind of condense the faithfulness of the plot of the book into the movie so that's what i would start you know if i had to pick i would still say Devil in the Blue Dress is, for me, slightly better. I think there's a lot to like in both films. Both kind of made, in some ways, by these kind of slightly outsider figures in Hollywood. Carl Franklin was an actor originally, and then he, he directed a few films. Didn't have a ton of commercial success, although I think he's pretty well regarded. You know, especially, this film is maybe especially as a director. But, of course, has that strange... So somewhat outsider status just from being a sort of African-American film director in, in the Hollywood mainstream. And Nicholas Ray, you know, even though he's sort of, you know, as a white man, is it makes these films, weird <laughs> films of alienation, like just a strange director. He makes this very bizarre, like Western called Johnny Guitar, which is off the wall. And then, of course, he's maybe most famous for the James Dean uh, film Rebel Without yeah. a Cause, but very much a figure who doesn't fit super cleanly into the the lines of like 40s and 50s Hollywood kind of a loner doing his own thing off in some weird way so I think both films are really a good testament to the craftsmanship of their directors in a lot of ways and, and I wanted to start at the technical level 
thinking about some some ways in which Carl Franklin is really uh, setting up some interesting visual and really oral ideas in The Devil in the Blue Dress adaptation. It's a fascinating film to me at that level of, really uh, at every level, uh, technical level. We'll talk about the performances maybe in a little bit, but the film starts with a kind of stunning crane shot where we lift up, we were kind of on the street, it's very busy, it's like sort of an African-American neighborhood in Los Angeles, there's people everywhere, and then we crane up and into the bar, Joppy's bar, where Yeezy is sitting in his undershirt um, reading the, the paper. And there are some tracking shots that reoccur throughout the film. And so partly this is like Franklin, you know, flexing his directorial muscles a little bit. Tracking shots are hard to pull off, right? You put the camera on some sort of track. You have to move it as you're filming. So it ups the level of difficulty quite a bit from a logistical standpoint. But he's also doing some very fascinating things with those the first one is a little bit different maybe because it's a crane shot but in subsequent tracking shots one of the things that i noticed is he has a very quick tracking shot following like easy through a crowd of people or something like that and then all of a sudden what you'll get is a cut a reverse shot cut to easy from usually from about the chest up so we get a straight on shot of denzel washington and to me that's sort of representative of one of the tensions of the film which is this tension between Easy's existential loneliness and the sense of somewhat vibrant, although also somewhat dangerous, obviously, community that's bustling around him in the film. I wanted to say one more thing about that, which is that the music in the film is very interesting um, because it's a mixture of basically like club jazz that we get, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, authentic period jazz that we get every time Easy's in a a public space. We get um, these sort of jazz standards that are coming through. And then in the moments, especially when he's driving around in his car or he's with Mouse, they're investigating something, we get Elmer Bernstein's score, which is a very, it's a lonely score, right? It's a very, uh, it's very reminiscent of, of Jerry Goldsmith's score to Chinatown, I think very intentionally, you get some mm-hmm. solo trumpet going on, like the Chinatown score, but it's that sense of dread, that's that noir feel of loneliness that plays off in a very interesting juxtaposition against those crowded scenes where it's lively music, it's lively happenings. I'm wondering what you think about the movie's interplay between sort of the individual and the crowd or the public space. The way you touched really well there on the difference between privacy and publicity reminds me of the thing that I really dislike about the change from In a Lonely Place, the book, to the movie, which is the writer of it turns out nothing uh, in the book, um, which is very meaningful in the book, which is written of In a Lonely Place, centering around a writer who actually didn't write anything. We are changed to Bogey, who is an excellent, maybe a great screenwriter. And another lonely place that we didn't touch on in our discussion of the novel is the lonely place of writing, writing without collaboration and writing by oneself and perhaps to no one eventually if the if the manuscript doesn't sell or if you're like Kafka or somebody great who you know barely gets any readers when you're alive that kind of loneliness is gone in the screenwriter not of a screenplay but an adapted screenplay where it's not even your own source material it's collaborative in some sense there and that collaborative Nature is public in the movie in a lonely place because he, his first kill is the woman who tells him the book, the synopsis of the book he has to translate into a screenplay. 
And then Laurel is the, the typist of the screenplay that he dictates his notes to or whatever. So the privacy or the loneliness of writing becomes public in the movie version, which changes a lot and a lot of the theme in important ways. And, you know, Dix goes from the lonely writer who's never written anything to the star writer who everyone can't wait to read what they write next. So there's some important things. But what you're speaking of, I think, really well about Devil in a Blue Dress, the difference between the public and the private, just with certain aspects of cuts and, and that voiceover and those zoom in shots on Denzel and then the kind of shots of crowds and all the other characters brings up a private public divide really well in that movie that I think is uh, fudged a bit in in a lonely place. Can I just push back for a minute? Um, because I do think, let me just defend the, the very strange choice in In a Lonely Place to, to switch all these things around. I do think there's an element, I don't exactly know what to call it. It's one of the most jarring tonal things about the film, but I actually also really like it, is this decision to have him be adapting this very clearly like Drek novel, right? It's like this weird like Long Island romance novel or something like that. And he's supposed to turn that. And he, he says sort of winking like at the end, like he basically doesn't even touch the book at all. He just sort of turns it into yeah. its own thing, which of course is a commentary on what's going on here. Al- of course. Al- although I will say, of course, in this case, that's a little bit unfair then to Dorothy B. Hughes's novel, which exactly. is a great novel. <laughs> exactly. But, better than the movie. Better than the movie. But, but I will say this. I think that the, the movie works on its own terms to some extent because it's interested in audience response to these things, right? The, the, the girl that gets killed is so enthusiastic. She loves this book. She tears through it. She can't wait to talk about it. And then we get these really weird shots when she's working with him in the apartment of her basically like almost breaking the fourth wall and direct addressing him, but the, the way that the camera is like a, a dead on shot. So it looks like she's talking to us as the audience, selling us this book and get, pumping us up about how great it is and how wonderful it is and kind of leading us through it, almost like a pitch meeting or something. It's a very, I found it to be a very sort of meta movie in, in some, mm-hmm. oh, in yeah, some fascinating sure. ways about sort of how the sausage gets made of, <laughs> of the film industry. Wait, did I misspeak? And di- he doesn't kill her though, right? No, he doesn't kill her. I- no, yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't. He, he doesn't, doesn't kill, her. kill no, her no. in the movie, and it's all a mistake of the gossip, the scuttlebutt of Hollywood, right? That he would ever be caught up in such things, and his own kind of weird personality, where he kind of courts being like a tabloid person, and he makes all these statements that would make him seem like a a potential murderer. And, and the death itself it becomes a sort of tawdry, like. You know, she's killed by her jealous boyfriend, basically, who doesn't like that she stayed out with this writer to help him. And so that in itself, I think, is another commentary. It's like, here, you want this, like, pablum? Here it is for you, this, like, this, like, romance-level plot that we're going to give you here as well. I know, I think that's intentional. I'm going to go to bat here uh, for for the film in in that regard. Okay, okay. To criticize Devil in a Blue Dress a little bit more, I thought that the time spent with Daphne Monet or Jennifer Beals just wasn't enough. There wasn't enough like, ooh, this is the it girl. This is Daphne Monet. You know, in my her blue mind, dress looks kind of goofy, honestly. Like the first one, at well, least. There's two of them, but like the first one, it's like <laughs> it's not very sexy. Well, when you're reading about the Devil in a Blue Dress and you're reading about characters searching for 
Daphne Monet and going through all of these kind of back channel difficult ways of finding her and then finally we meet her and she has this allure in her dialogue um, in her description and then when the film kind of gives us Jennifer Beals in like you're saying the the blue dress that's it's it's you know it's flattering but it's not there wasn't that much like ooh, this is the alluring kind of it girl that you can see why everybody's mm-hmm. chasing her. Just the the framing of the shots and the kind of pan up to her and things were a little bit more like, ooh, here she is. She's kind of interesting and she's kind of, you know, knows what she's about and smarter than the average uh, person in this world um, in a lot of ways. But you didn't get the sense of like, ooh, she's devilishly going to lead you one way and clearly be wanting something else the whole time mm-hmm. or anything like that you got this kind of sense of like she's involved in multiple situations at once and kind of in love with this guy and it turns out really crappy and and that was one of my my main criticisms is i I do think she loses some of that mysterious edge in part because of the decision at the end easy says like she's convinced that carter's gonna take her back and he rejects her which doesn't happen in the book and and i think that was a wise decision on mosley's part in the book because she just ends up being this much more alluring and mysterious character. And here it almost, I mean, it makes her a little bit more like a, like a lovesick girl or something like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, So yeah, I definitely agree with that, that there's there's some of the mysterious edge of Daphne and Monet from the book is dulled here in the way that she's comes across on the screen. I think that's right. And I mean, I guess it's hard not to see Denzel of the nineties as the Denzel of today where like, I see the character and I in the movie and I don't see easy. I just see Denzel in some ways. Like he's so this, he's know, a movie star, right? He's not, a, he's, he's a not movie, an actor right. anymore. He's a movie star, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's the thing where the movie star, it's hard for the movie star to not be seen as the movie star in every movie that they're in. And so look like watching it now, not in the nineties, it's hard not to see this amazing vaunted, like award winning multiple multiple award-winning actor doing everything and to see some of the kind of like chips on the shoulder and like difficulty of coming up and you know grittiness i don't know of of easy might be lost a little bit on the the star power of denzel a little bit but i can't fault the movie for that i guess you're getting prime denzel there that's like right after malcolm x and so he's like you know he's he isn't he isn't quite, he isn't the, the, the mega star that he is today, but he's like very much on the ascent. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I was surprised actually at how I, I was like a little bit taken aback at how young, he, just how young he looks in the film. Cause I, I'm sort of, I have Denzel. But isn't he like almost 40 in that movie or 40? He might be, but he yeah, looks young just... to me compared to Denzel of today. Right. So he's got that edge. He's got enough of that like sort of brash edge to it. This is probably a good point to, to just bring up. I mean, just like in the book, I think this is one of the greatest things. In the book, we talked about, when we talked about Devil in a Blue Dress, we talked about how Mouse as a character really injects life into the book. And, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't come in until most of the way through the book, but he really is a shot in the arm here. And and Don Cheadle is just incredible as Mouse. I think he's really, he steals the, the, the movie in a lot of ways, even from Denzel, who's very, you know, charismatic in his own right. But Don Cheadle's just so good as the sort of live wire, this like nerve. He's got a kind of a nervous face, I think, in some ways. And so he's really good at bringing life to this dangerous guy in the movie. And I think this is maybe a benefit of the movie. I don't know. 
there's not as much backstory for Mouse, and so we get a lot of he's just there all of a sudden, and he's like, "What the hell is going on?" And then he's gone again by the end of the film. And so, so th- I really I think Don Cheadle's performance is excellent, and it's just it crackles on the screen and really gives you a sense of the edge of what's going on. And, and I'd say the same for Tom Sizemore as uh, Dewitt Albright. He feels. I think even more so than in the novel, like a dangerous character, the way that Tom Sizemore plays him. He really feels brutal to me. I imagined that character, DeWitt, as a bit more of like a crazy John Goodman type. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, but Tom Sizemore does a great job too. And I think there are a few moments where Tom Sizemore, Denzel, and Don Cheadle all take certain moments. Like the moment where Easy and DeWitt are kind of arguing in his house, um, that's kind of straight from the novel. You get a really sense that like these are actors really with a deep knowledge of their craft going through that scene. And it's a little bit different from the novel, but in a way where I'm like, that was a really artistic like expression of how the, the novel went there. They kind of took it their own way and it was really good. And same with Mouse with the scene with the gun mm-hmm. uh, yes. where he's drunk. It's a little bit different from in the novel, but you get a sense that okay, Don Cheadle can really act well. And he interpreted that scene how he wanted to, and it was very good. So yeah, I I got that a lot. There are a lot of good moments like that in this movie, which is part of why I kind of like it more. You get a lot of those like masterful acting moments. Since you brought up the question of Denzel maybe being you know, in our own minds now, too much of a movie star. That that does raise the question then of what in the world is going on with Humphrey Bogart and in a lonely place. Of course. Because it's the same I mean, way worse problem there. Because because Humphrey Bogart, God bless him, he's a wonderful he's a wonderful <laughs> film star. I don't know if he's a great actor or not. He is in his own Ooh. way, right? I mean sorry, I, I'm not trying to give you a hot take. Like he is great, but he is always Humphrey Bogart, right? Right. And okay. no matter what. And and so he dominates the film so much, I think. And Gloria Graham does a good job of keeping up with him, but she's not. I almost wish it had been like, I mean, Barbara Stanwyck would have been like, I mean, I, I just have a thing for Barbara Stanwyck. Sorry. But like Barbara Stanwyck in this role would have been like, yeah, she's keeping up with him. Right. Gloria Graham is good, but I don't know if she quite keeps up with him in in terms of like just how craggly and intense he is. And, and he's kind of, you know, to be honest, he's just kind of miscast, and I guess maybe not oh, yeah. because they changed it so much from who. I mean, I feel like they had they did a thing where they're like, "This is Bogey. We're gonna change <laughs> we're just... this role to make him more, way more likable." And like, basically, the whole movie revolves around how he got a bad rap, and he was just like the wrong guy at the wrong time, right? And his rage got the best of him. Woe is him! And he goes off into the sunset. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's certainly too old to be playing like the original Dick Steele, and so they, of course they change it. He's a little bit older, but he he is too much. Like, I mean, honestly, like he's I mean, he's too ugly in an interesting looking way to be Dick Steele because Dick Steele is handsome, but he's also kind of like featureless, right? Basically, that's like his appeal. He's a cipher in a lot of ways. And, and Humphrey Bogart could never be a cipher because you just see the face and you're like, that's Humphrey Bogart. Right? So I do think that that's, I mean, and obviously they work around it because it's not the same, it's not the same as the book. And so they're going for, they're playing different angles and it, and it, and it does work and he's good in it. He's really is good in it. He anchors it, but, but it is a, it's jarring in some ways to see that, to see kind of the directions. I think you're right that they were sort of forced to take it because of who Humphrey Bogart is and the way they had to adjust on the fly, maybe even. Was that after Casablanca or before? Oh, yeah, well, well after, about eight, right. eight years after. Cause, so. Yeah, because you get the sense that he's trying to kind of anti-type his Casablanca figure and ending in some ways. And 
reverse it and give the reverse side of how that could have went with this kind of like rage-filled maniacal guy who's quelling it most of the time but then it's mostly been the a thread throughout his whole life and then it really comes comes out at the end yeah yeah i think that's a good point that it is sort of like the dark underbelly of that type the humphrey bogart character right in something like casablanca and in in a lot of his other films no not not all of them but in a lot of them there's that sort of he's a loner but he's a noble loner in that way right or whatever there's an undercurrent there and and here and i think so we should talk about this at times like slightly uncomfortable like depiction of what's going on here in terms of dix's anger and and i almost i mean i read this more as a story basically about like domestic abuse rather than Mm -hmm. than like psychopathy or something like that that would be in the book where he's going around just like strangling random women here it's like he physically hurts the people around him not just his woman but his agent and uh, you know other people like that like he's and he he has these moments of anger that he can't control i brought this up in the book episode in the book it's to me it almost feels more like some sort of detachment or low spirits that leads him to kill here it's like an impulse that he can't control that he acts out in Mm -hmm. anger he beats a motorist up who insults him he like slaps his agent right he does all these things and it's this sort of uncontrollability of what's going on and i don't think the film ultimately does really try to justify it but there, there are these weird like the agent in particular as a character is trying to say like you gotta understand he's like an artist character but i think the film itself actually does work against that by the end but there are these uncomfortable moments of like this is like a really unpleasant character especially since it is humphrey bogart who we know we're, we're supposed to like like we're, oh we like him but he he's such a deeply unpleasant character in so many ways and the film kind of toys around with the idea with, well, like, oh, that's a, that's a tortured genius for you. But then I, I do think it rejects that by the end. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it's more ambiguous than that. Well, here's where I would ask on your reading of this as like a meta film. Is this like a attempt to say something about the Humphrey Bogart figure in some way? This like Humphrey Bogart at this time is kind of like a stand in for a certain kind of like masculinity or something. Is it certainly the Nicholas Ray of the James Dean films, who's also saying something, I think, meta about masculinity there? I don't know. Is there some kind of like, you need to suspect the crazy creative type. You need to keep them at more than an arm's length, like this publicist or whoever he is, you know, realizes at the end. I, I think so, yeah. I, I think that there's, okay, I think there's a okay. critical eye to that that figure as a figure which is weird then because it's like is ray that figure himself or like knows those figures figures, yeah 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 it's like a weird who is he talking about kind of thing and i'm not i I don't want to go too far and like i and like i said there are some like uncomfortable moments in the film in terms of what where this that line of like excusing this behavior and but, but i don't think it ultimately comes down in that box i think it ultimately is trying to say this is an extremely broken person that you should probably stay away from. I don't know though. I mean, I think it could be read maybe multiple ways, but it's a bizarre ending compared, I mean, to the other the book where like off to jail he goes, he's confessed and it's over. He just kinda like hangs his head and uh Laurel has the line something like getting the confirmation from the chief of police that he wasn't dicks who was the killer 
and after he had almost strangled her in her room and she says like yesterday that would have meant you know a hill of beans to me or whatever but today it means nothing yeah and he walks away yeah. into the fog it, i don't know it's just uh having just read the book and then watching the movie i was shocked by that ending it's definitely a not a tidy ending i mean in one way it is because <laughs> it's the end of the relationship but yeah it's a, it's definitely like it's weird and like jagged in a lot of ways unpleasant as an ending i think i agree with that for sure and what did you make of the ending in devil in the blue dress and this character is he in the book or not where he's trying to take everyone's trees from their yard no this is an an original character to the film i don't know what's going on with that character i have yes someone please give us a comment or write in or tell us why there's this character from the beginning it's like he shows up like three or four times and he's in like random little trying to snips. steal people's trees out of their yards or like he'd cut them down he cut wants them, them to cut them yeah. down because he thinks it's going to improve their yards basically and easy's like get away <laughs> he's from like throws rocks at them and stuff. i will like yeah i will like beat you up if you take my trees i mean and rightly so who's this guy just like taking everybody's trees as if there is yeah he's like your yard will look better without any trees yeah what is the I'm sure Walter Mosley had some interesting point to make there, but I had no idea what it was. But it ends with him like getting, it seems like Easy's going to take him out of the picture. Yeah. He's not going to come back anymore looking for people's trees. He like saves a neighbor's yeah. trees. And then he's like, gives his like classic noir like monologue about the end. And we get this kind of like larger shot of like his street and the mm-hmm. people on his street and his neighborhood, like kind of just sufficing in some way you know Mm -hmm. like there's some contentment or there's some thing there that he's gained yeah i'm pretty fascinated by the end of the film in part because it kind of crystallizes something that franklin's doing subtly i think throughout the film which is he is making the film version of the book maybe a little bit more pointedly political but in some subtle ways still very very subtle ways because definitely blue dress even though you can't escape this, you know, the racial politics of it. It's it's mostly a noir story, right? It's like set in that world, and it, it, there's not too much, there's not too many kind of cutaways to the broader world. But because it's a film, Carl Franklin can give us that around the edges. And so one major change that happens actually in the book, or from from the book to the movie, is that in the movie, Carter Daphne Monet's boyfriend fiance is also running for mayor which is not the case in the book and he's forced right. to drop out first and then they try to get Terrell he's not Terran now he's Terrell I don't know why they did, made, made that change but to, to, to drop out with these pictures of him with children but what, what that leaves us with at the end is the idea that because Terrell presents himself as the friend of the black man right he's like the he's the sort of populist you know guy who's who's getting votes you know from the black people and the Hispanic people and the, you know, the people who are left out of society. So in the end, we have this choice between, it's kind of a stark choice. It's like, do you, you know, support the guy who's going to help you maybe materially, but is also a pedophile? Or do you support like the guy who's not as not a pedophile, but like is going to be business as usual. And then that, that sort of solidified for me at the end, because it's a very quick shot. But as we go back to easy's neighborhood, he's sitting there um, reading the paper with, with Odell and you see at the top of the newspaper, it comes very quickly, but there's a reference, something about, you know, black people being unhappy with new housing restrictions. And and there's nothing said about that. But what Carl Franklin's telling us is like, this is the beginning of redlining that's coming. Mm. Oh, and so yeah, it, it, it lends this dark cast to that ending monologue where easy, you're right, is kind of waxing poetic about how great it is to have a house and have a community and all these things. But you have that sort of 
dark shadow that's being cast at the same time over that because you're seeing it's being hinted at how tenuous that really is for somebody in Easy's position. So I like the ambiguity of that ending at a subtle visual level while still feeling like, a you know, in some ways a kind of conventional, not happy ending because it's noir, but, you know, a conventional, like sort of satisfying ending at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's that, that seed of dissatisfaction that's being planted at the same time. Yeah, that's an excellent point about the red lining. I, I thought that while watching it, I'm like, oh, they're really, they're bringing something in very subtly there. And I was just overwhelmed by the guy stealing people's palm trees. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very strange. Guy. I do not know what the purpose of that man in the film is. I like it as an element. No, it's weird. It's cool and weird. I can't funny, put but... it into any reading of the film. Are there like driving in a car shots that are that important in a Devil in a Blue Dress? Yeah, there's a lot of shots of him driving around, and like a lot of times, that's where the memory stuff comes in. You know, he'll be driving, and we get those flashback, those weird flashbacks that we get. But I feel like we don't get as many shots of um, like easy driving as we do of like Dick's driving. Yeah, maybe not. I'm not sure. Because mm-hmm. I'm remembering the one where like he has to get in the car, like the car pulls out in front of him, and he's like forced to get in easy, and then he's talking to Terrell, yeah, and um, it's just that odd conversation, and then he gets out and he's like, "No, I'll walk home," mm-hmm. right? Because you made it some really interesting points about the kind of importance of the automobile as like almost like a character in in a lonely place, and I was thinking about that a little bit more in these two movies and the way that we get those like straight on shots of Dick's driving and the classic. If you've read the book, this is the moment where you know like he's a bad guy, where he brings his arm around Laurel in the car, like as if he were going to strangle her there very like foreshadowing kind of like clinching him as a character in some ways similar to how when you're reading the book in the first hundred pages you might find a way where you're like okay he's probably the killer and there's all this importance of kind of like his autonomy like comes from the car in some ways right Mm -hmm. and all of that mobility class mobility dreams of class mobility this might be a stretch but i feel like the parallel there with easy in devil in a blue dress the film isn't him in a car but him at his house Mm -hmm. where his house has been penetrated by debris or some debris or something he's got to get him out and then he gets his moment where like he hits like his own table or whatever but not too hard right because it's his house (laughs) and he's like happy that they're gone and like a kind of autonomy is retained in that moment and like that I think the the kind of the way that cuts along racial differences is interesting right with like stability of a house versus mobility of the car I think there's something interesting maybe going on there with like the the house is kind of a like a location as a character almost in Devil in a Blue Dress Easy's house which isn't like kind of talked up as much as it is in the novel but it because we go back there so often it gets that kind of importance in a different way uh, visually versus the car again not being like discussed as much amongst the characters in in a lonely place but all the shots of it and the like road the road chase scene kind of being more important i don't know does that make some sense no yeah i think that's a good point carl that we do keep coming back to the house in some lovely visual ways in in devil in a blue dress and that's one of the things maybe that like 
one of the key differences, and obviously they're very different characters. I'm not trying to compare them, but like as noir heroes or anti-heroes in the case of Dix, one of the things that that separates them is that Easy lives alone in his house. It is a lonely place in that sense, but it's not a lonely place for him. It's a, it's a place of independence and it's a place of stability. And then also a place of ultimately of community because by the end, you know, even though you're right that people keep penetrating the inner sanctum of his house in unfortunate ways for him, by the end he he has that real friendship with Odell that's like taking place on the front porch that he's there and then he's out in the community of people in the neighborhood. And so that does feel like less of an isolating thing than that constant moving around that happens in the car. And we get that, you know, pretty wonderfully in these scenes, these these rear projection scenes of them driving around in the car and in a lonely place, right? right. Which is a pretty, you know, that's a classic Hollywood shot, right? You're driving yeah. around in a car, yeah, rear classic. projecting, you know, which is where they, so they're driving and something's being projected behind them to make it look like the road because they're not actually driving, right? But it's got that slightly fake look, but in a good way, in like a productive way, I think. And so we get a lot of that in, in, in a lonely place. I think that's a really good point. That lends itself to that to that film's feeling of isolation, of emotional isolation. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and and we were talking in the in the discussion of in a lonely place. What is the thing that you can put above your physical, mental isolation within your own head? And for Dix, friendship doesn't work out, and the view of friendship that we get between him and like someone like Brub doesn't seem that appealing. And the novel Hughes almost goes so far as to say like that picture of friendship isn't worthwhile, isn't good enough. And thus social horrors ensue. But in Devil in a Blue Dress, the movie, we get a great sense of like Odell really is a good friend. And that that joke that is, you know, funny and soothing at the end of Devil in a Blue Dress, it pays off a little bit differently on screen. The laugh isn't as big maybe but the sense of friendship is very soothing and it's definitely a better answer to what kind of friendship matters than one that that Hughes gives us in a lonely place uh the book so looking at kind of all four documents I think that's kind of interesting hmm. yeah yeah those are, those are good thoughts Carl well let's wrap it up there uh for now this little bonus content for you um we will be back next week in fact with our next book discussion which as we said on the last pod is going to be over thomas carlisle's sartor resartus for something completely different but we will be back uh, talking about that with you soon until then though we're gonna let cat keyboard play us out I wanted to say these things out loud and be laughed at. But you're not laughing.